Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, I was born in an era known as the Cold War. The Cold War basically lasted, uh, started in the 1950s and lasted through to the early 1990s. And it was basically an ideological war between the USSR and between the US and uh, a war um, that was basically, uh, you know, over capitalism uh, versus communism. And even though no weapon was fired during this period, they were stockpiling weapons and there was great fear as people were afraid that someone might press the button, causing the whole world to be destroyed in nuclear winter. And probably during this time, as if you were part of the US Army, there would be no more fearful place to be stationed than in Moscow at the embassy right in the heart of the USSR. But uh, the Marines who would be stationed there, they, they were, if you know anything about the US Army, they're usually considered to be the toughest of the tough, the strongest of the strong. In fact, the US Marines, they have this uh, phrase, uh, Sempra Fi. Does anyone know what that phrase means? Semprify? It means always faithful or always loyal. So it would be completely unheard of for a Marine to turn his back on his country and commit treason. But in the late 80s, it came to light that one young Marine had done that very thing. There was this guy called Clayton Lone Tree. And while stationed in Moscow at the embassy there, Far from his family, far from his land, he was seduced by a young Russian woman named Valetta. And uh, it turns out that she was a, a KJ, KGB agent and uh, KJV, I was just going to say a KJV agent, a KGB agent. And uh, she, uh, you know, seduced him into giving her secret giving her secrets from the embassy and actually into revealing the names of many of the spies of the US that were stationed in the Soviet Union. So here was this one who was meant to be always faithful, always loyal. And yet because he was far from his land, he was seduced into giving over his allegiance to the enemy. You know, I think for many of us as Christ followers in the culture in which we find ourselves, we can feel like we've been placed in a foreign land. And many of you here today might feel alone and isolated. As you go to your work, you might be the only Christian in your workplace. Or maybe when you go to university, you might feel like you're the only university student in your course. Or maybe when you go to high school, you might feel like you're the only person who stands for God in your class. And it's very, very easy in that environment when we feel isolated and alone for us to give over our allegiance, be seduced by the culture, the secular culture in which we live and start giving over our allegiance to the enemy. So how do we actually um, resist the temptation to be seduced? How do we remain sempra fi, always faithful, in the secular culture in which we find ourselves. Well, this is where our study of the book of Daniel is going to be so instructive for us because Daniel was taken as a young person and he was placed on post, on mission in Babylon. 
And he would live all of his life in Babylon. And rather than being seduced by the culture around him, or rather than give, or, or rather than retreat from the culture just into a cultural conclave, Daniel took his stand. And by taking his stand, he left a legacy for believers of all generations for how they can take their stand in a foreign culture. Uh, you know, it's interesting that Daniel made an impact and he made an impact not primarily as a prophet. Although Daniel was a prophet and he did receive prophetic revelation, he primarily made an impact as a government official. His mission was lived out in the marketplace. And I think that's important for us because most of the time we celebrate those people who take leadership inside the church, but most of us are actually called to be Daniels. We are called to be on mission in the marketplace. And the book of Daniel will teach us how we can take our stand and make a difference. If there's one word that I want you to remember from our study of the book of Daniel, it's that word, stand. What's the book of Daniel all about? It's about standing up. It's about taking your stand. Now, just to give you a bit of an overview of the book, chapters 1 to 5 record the stories of Daniel and his three friends and give us examples of how we are to stand. But then chapters 7 to chapters 12 shift, and then we have prophecies, these amazing prophecies would outline God's plan for human history and speak about the coming of Jesus the first time and speak about His second coming. And so Daniel writes this book to his readers to encourage them to be faithful while they wait for God's soon coming kingdom. Once again, the book of Daniel is not to give us a survival mentality. You know, many Christians that I meet, they adopt this survival mentality. I just, I just need to survive until Jesus comes back. No, 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 no. The book of Daniel teaches us that you can thrive even in Babylon if you take your stand. So over the, the next few months, we're going to go on this journey through the book of Daniel and learn how we can take our stand in a secular culture. Well, today we are going to see that we can actually resist the seduction of our secular culture if we do three things. Firstly, if we reside in God's Word. Secondly, if we resist the pressure to conform. And thirdly, if we resolve to live for God. So we need to reside in God's Word. We need to resist the pressure to conform. And then we need to resolve to live for God. So firstly, we need to reside in God's Word. Now, Daniel, they, they believe, was only around about 15, only around about 15 when he was taken from Jerusalem and forced to live in Babylon. Who here is about 15 years of age? Who here is 15? Have we got any people here this morning who are 15, maybe 16? Fantastic. So Daniel was around about your age when he was taken to live in Babylon. And he was taken because the worst thing possible that the people of Judah could imagine had happened. Look down your Bibles in verses one and two. It sets the historical context. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury 
of his God. Now, this, this event happened historically in 605 BC when Prince Nebuchadnezzar led his father's army in a battle against the alliance of the forces of the Assyrians and the Egyptians. It was a battle that happened at Carchemish. Here's a bit of a, a diagram to show you. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Prince Nebuchadnezzar left, went up to Carchemish, fought the Assyrians and the Egyptians and defeated them. And thus Babylon became the greatest world power in the time. And then Nebuchadnezzar came down to Jerusalem and besieged it. But when he was in Jerusalem, when he was surrounding Jerusalem, Prince Nebuchadnezzar received an important communique from Babylon telling him that his father had died, making him now the king. So he had to return back to, um, uh, back, back to Babylon. And, uh, and uh, so he returned back to Babylon and he left Jehoiakim to reign in his place because he knew Jehoiakim was a very spineless leader. But Nebuchadnezzar would come two more times and he would come and assault the city and eventually completely destroy the city in 586 uh, BC. Now, for Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, this um, defeat of Judah was really actually no big deal. You see, uh, Judah were only the minor allies to the Assyrians and the Egyptians. A little bit like how Australia and New Zealand are minor allies to the US. I was thinking this week that, you know, if... Russia defeated the US, they probably wouldn't even mention Australia and New Zealand on their news reports. They would just talk about how they had defeated the US. This is, this is a sort of a little bit how the Babylonians felt. But for the people of Judah, this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. Do you notice in your text how Daniel mentions how the vessels of gold had been taken out of the temple and had been put by Nebuchadnezzar into the temple of his pagan God. Now, why does Daniel mention that particular detail? Well, this is significant. You see, for the people of Judah, Jerusalem was the place where God had set for his name to dwell. It was the place where the Shekinah glory of God would come in the temple. But now, Jerusalem had fallen. And for the people of Judah, they couldn't even compute this. I mean, they thought that Jerusalem was invincible because God had chosen for his name to dwell there. But now Babel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had come and assaulted the city of Jerusalem and it even plundered the house of God. He'd even taken the golden vessels that were used in the worship of the true God and had put them in the, the temple of, the, of his pagan God. And so for the people of Judah, for many of them, this would cause them a crisis of faith. They'd be thinking, I wonder if our God is truly the, the true God after all. I mean, if, if God can allow his holy city and can allow his temple to be plundered so that they take these golden vessels and place them in the temple of their pagan God, then maybe our God is not the true God after all. You know, many people that I've noticed, many Christians right now, they're experiencing a crisis of faith. Because many Christians are looking at our culture and the seismic shifts that are happening in our culture and they're wondering, God, where are you? If you could allow this to happen to our culture, if you could allow the city of churches to be so polluted like it is right now, then maybe, maybe God, you're actually not the real God. But Daniel, Daniel, get this. The age of 15, this did not shake his faith. And I know this because look down in verse 2. 
He says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. This was, God, this was God's doing that this happened. Now, why did Daniel have such rock-solid faith? Let me tell you why. Because his faith was not built upon his circumstances. His faith was built upon the Word of God. And for generations, the people of Judah, uh, prophets had come to the people of Judah and warned them of their idolatry, that if they maintained their idolatry, they would be judged just like the northern kingdom had been judged. And do you remember in the book of Habakkuk that we were studying earlier this year? Who was here when we studied the book of Habakkuk? Remember in the book of Habakkuk, how Habakkuk had asked God, God, why is there so much injustice in Judah and why don't you do anything about it? And do you remember what the Lord had said to Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1 verse 6? He had said, I am going to do something about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians and they will be my instrument of judgment. And so when Daniel saw this very thing happening that the Lord had said would happen, his faith wasn't rocked. It's because his faith resided in the Word of God. God was just doing what He said He would do. And you know, our faith does not be, need to be rocked when we see our world raging against God because Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. The world hated me. Guess what, guys? The world's going to hate you. This is what Jesus said. It shouldn't actually rock our faith whatsoever if our faith resides in the Word of God. But why did Daniel's faith reside in the Word of God? Well, I believe it's because Daniel had parents who taught him the Word of God. You see, only a few generations before, Josiah, a good king, had led a mighty revival in Judah. And even though the revival didn't have a lasting effect, it had an effect on four families and their four sons. You know, that gives me great confidence that even though there mightn't be a great breadth, width to my ministry, there can be a great depth. My ministry might affect some, and it certainly affected those four families and those four boys. And, and so Daniel's parents bought him up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. They named him Daniel. The name Daniel means God is my judge. You know, I was writing, I wrote on my whiteboard this week, this question, a really challenging question as I was thinking about this passage. How would my children go if they were taken from me at the age of 15? Parents, that's a great question to ask. Am I putting the Word of God into their hearts so that if they were taken from me and taken to Babylon, they would stand? You see, if I'm going to have the Word of God reside in their hearts, it needs to first reside in my heart. How do you resist the seduction of a secular culture? You need to reside in the Word of God. You need to be daily in the Word of God. You need fresh manna every day from the Lord, fresh, a fresh word from the Lord every single day. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that unless you are exhorted daily, your heart will drift away from God. So are you, do you have some sort of Bible reading plan? That's why we put together these booklets for you to get into the Word of God. Because how do you resist the seduction of a secular world? You need to reside in the Word of God. But secondly, we need to resist the pressure to conform. Resist the pressure to conform. 
You know, as I said, Daniel and his three friends were only just young men who were of 15 years of age and, they, and King Nebuchadnezzar was putting huge pressure on them to conform themselves to the culture of Babylon. It was sort of like they were put in a vice, you know, a vice and, and, and the pressure was being mounted and the vice was being, was being pulled so that, they, that the pressure was being applied to them. And, and there was three ways in which King Nebuchadnezzar sought to put pressure on Daniel and his friends. Firstly, he sought to reorientate their desires. Look down in verse three, we read this. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He took them out of Jerusalem and took them to the great city of Babylon. Now, the city of Babylon was the premier city of the time. A little bit like how uh, New York is the premier city of the West and maybe Dubai could be considered as the premier city of the Middle East. Now, as you came into, you could just imagine Daniel and his three friends coming into the great city of Babylon and their jaws dropping as they saw the greatness and opulence of the city. Uh, they would have walked Firstly, through the Ishtar Gate. Here's a picture of the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate was this ornate gate that had been constructed to the, the goddess Ishtar. And they would have walked through that. This is a reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate that's found in a museum in Berlin. They then, as they continued through, they would have come to the Temple of Akitu. The Temple of Akitu was this place where every year there was this festival held as the renewal of spring. Then as they walked, you can imagine them walking down the processional way and passing a ziggurat seven stories high, possibly built on the same site where in Genesis chapter 11, the people of Babel had tried to build a temple up to God. This ziggurat had a name in Suzerian. Its name was the foundation of heaven and earth. And finally, you can imagine as these young men came to Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Here's a bit of a picture of the palace. In the palace was Nebuchadnezzar's throne room, which was ornate with gold and jewels. At the top of Nebuchadnezzar's palace was the famed Hanging Gardens of Babylon, considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar did this because he wanted to reorientate these young men's hearts so that they would forget what Jerusalem was like and so their hearts would be gripped by the greatness of Babylon. Do you know what? Our secular culture is seeking to grab your heart. It's seeking to grab your heart with its temporary glory and temporary pleasures. You know, I found that most people who walk away from Jesus, they don't walk away because their theology changes. If you were to give them a theology quiz, they would probably answer in an orthodox way. They typically walk away because their hearts have been reorientated. Their hearts have been captured by Babylon. But secondly, King Nebuchadnezzar sought to re-educate their thinking or retrain their thinking. Look down in verse five. It says, the king assigned them daily a portion of food that the king drank. 
and the wine that he drank, oh, that he ate, and the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So King Nebuchadnezzar put them into a course of study that was meant to train the faith out of them. It was meant to teach them to think like a Babylonian, to speak like a Babylonian. And, and the city of Babylon was, was not just a great architectural marvel, but, but all of the temples in Babylon contained libraries and they had great learning and they had great understanding of maths. In fact, John Lennox, I heard a mathematician from Oxford, he said that our whole system of time, that there are 60 seconds in a minute and there's 60 minutes in an hour, it actually comes from Babylon, from the Babylonians. And so they were all, this whole system was to seek to train the faith out of them. Parents, do you realize that your kids are growing up in an educational system where underneath the surface, the philosophy is one of materialism and often with an ideo, a Marxist ideology underneath the surface. Our kids are having the faith trained out of them. But you are also, as you live here in Babylon, it's seeking to conform your thinking, to change your values, to change your perspective. You know, it's so refreshing to have um, last weekend Pastor Todd Wagner with us. And one of the things about Todd is, is that Todd shares the gospel with everyone he meets. Hey, hey Carl. Carl was actually uh, with Todd out for dinner and uh, a waitress came up, Carl. Now, I probably will get the details wrong, but a waitress came up and, and he, he said to her, like, uh, you can probably tell that I come from somewhere different. And, uh, and she said, yeah, where do you come from? And he said, oh, I come from Dallas. And then he said, you know, in Dallas, there are plenty of ways to mess up your life and there are probably plenty of ways to mess up your life here in Adelaide. But I've met Jesus and he's changed my life. And Carl was sitting there like almost laughing because that's the intro that he used. You know, why do we cringe when we actually hear something like that? It's because our secular world has told us that there is a divide between the sacred and the secular and you need to keep God out of the public space. It's all right for you to have a private faith, but if you mention it public, then there's something strange about you. This culture is seeking to retrain our thinking. Well, thirdly, the third thing that Nebuchadnezzar sought to do is he sought to rename them. Look down in verse six. He says, among these were Daniel. Daniel's name, as I said, means my God is judge. Hananiah, his name means God is gracious. Mishael, whose name means who is like God. It's actually a name that describes the uniqueness of God. And Azariah, whose name means my God is help. What a beautiful, when you think about it, how beautiful are their names? It's actually a description of the gospel. Our God is judge. Our Lord is gracious. Who is like God? There's no one like him. He's unique. And my God is my help. Names given to them by their parents to remind them of their identity as the people of God. But yet Babylon sought to rename them and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Belshazzar means Bel is my help. Bel is a shortened version of the, uh, of the Babylonian god Marduk, the chief god. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. That's uh, 
that name means at the command of a coup. A coup was the moon god. Mishael, he called Meshach. Meshach is who is like a coup. And Azariah, he called Abendigo. Abendigo uh, means in Aramaic, um, uh, a servant of Nabu. Nabu was another sort of Babylonian god. So we can see that Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to rename them, seeking to get them to, to, to no longer identify themselves as the people of God, but was seeking to give them a new identity. You know, our secular world is seeking to do exactly the same thing. Our secular world is seeking to feed us what I call lie-identities, seeking to, to get us away from seeing our identity as being in God, but as our identity in, in being in many other things. You know, I love social media. I think it's a, a way that we can share the gospel. But when you think about social media, what do we do when we use social media? We, we take a photo, all right? And then we take these photos and then we select the photo that we want to post, typically one that's, that's, that has us in a really good light. And then we post it online and then we check back often for likes. And why do we do that? Because we've often bought into, into the idea that our identity is built upon what people think rather than on what God thinks. But one of the things I love as you read through the book of Daniel is that Daniel over and over again refused to call himself Belshazzar. He calls himself Daniel the name that his parents gave him. My God is King. He refused to accept the lie-identities that Babylon was giving to him. You've got to refuse to accept the lie-identities that this world is seeking to place on you if you are going to resist being seduced by our secular world. So can you see that Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to conform them. He was seeking to reorientate their desires, retrain their thinking and rename them. And our secular culture is seeking to do exactly the same with you. You know, I'm told that if you want to boil a frog, you don't just take a frog and put him in boiling water because he will immediately jump out. Now, if you want to boil a frog, what you need to do is you take the frog and you put him in cold water and he'll jump in I think, oh, this is nice and comfortable in here and you'll swim around. And then you take that pot and you put it on the stove and the water will start heating up. And at first, the frog will be like, oh, this is nice in here. This is like a froggy jacuzzi in here. This is really nice. But as the temperature increases, as it goes up in degrees, little does the frog know that he is being sapped of his energy. He is being sapped of his strength so that when the pot comes to the boiling point, he won't be able to jump out. Do you realize that this secular culture is seeking to conform you to its ways? That little by little, the pressure is being turned up. It's seeking to reorientate your desires, retrain your thinking, rename you. And if you are not active in standing against the pressure that is out there to conform, then one day you will wake up and you'll make some foolish decision that will cause devastation in your life and you'll wonder, how did I get there? How did I cheat on my wife, whom I love, wrecking my marriage, wrecking my family? How did I become 
consumed with my career, disregarding the people of God, disregarding the Word of God. How did this happen to me? Well, it didn't happen in that moment. It happened little by little by little by little as you just passively went on and didn't seek to push back on the pressure that the secular culture seeks to conform you to. You see, if you are going to resist the seduction of our secular world, you need to resist the pressure to conform. You cannot be passive. We are at war. We're in a war. If you sit back in a war, you're bound to be shot. We actually need to stand firm. And finally, not only do we need to remain in God's Word and resist the pressure to conform, but we need to resolve to live for God. Resolve to live for God. I love this. I mean, I mean here's, here, here Nebuchadnezzar has taken Daniel and his three friends and he's put the clothes of Babylon on them. He's taught them to speak the Babylonian language. He's renamed them. But then we see this statement in verse 8, and this is the turning point in the story. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. You can put your clothes on me. You can take me from my family. You can rename me. But I will live for God. That's what Daniel said. This word resolve speaks about the intention of his heart. Daniel drew a line in the sand and said, I will go no further than this. I will live for God. You know, when it comes to this, there are standards that the Bible teaches us that now as believers, we need to live out. But there's also personal convictions that we need to have if we are to live out his standards. I wonder, have you drawn a line in the sand in your heart when it comes and do you have personal convictions? For example, when it comes to your integrity, have you drawn a line in the sand and said, though everyone else in my workplace may slander and gossip and shade the truth, I will be a person who will speak the truth. Have you drawn a line in the sand? Have you drawn a line in the sand when it comes to your sexual purity? And you've said, well, I am not going to watch those movies. I'm not going to go to those websites because I want to maintain my sexual purity for the Lord. Have you drawn a line in the sand and said, even though this materialistic culture says that if you get material blessing, you are to spend your material blessing on yourself. Have you drawn a line in the sand and you are saying, nope, this is the level of my standard of living. This is where I'm going to live. And anything I get above and beyond that, I'm not going to think that God is giving me that for myself. I'm going to bless others and I'm going to use that for kingdom work. Have you drawn a line in the sand? Young people in your dating relationships, let me tell you something. It's too late to have the discussion when you're in the car alone with your girlfriend and boyfriend. It's too late to discuss how far is too far. You need to have determined in advance to draw the line. It's too late when you come to that moment of temptation. You need to draw the line in the sand and say, this is my conviction. I've resolved in my heart that I am going to live for God. Now, why the food? Why the food? Well, it may be for Daniel that uh, he was following the kosher laws found in Leviticus. God had said, 
to his people that they were to eat certain foods to demonstrate their holiness before him. But I, I don't think it was that. I think what it was, was as Daniel looked at the king's table and this food that was coming to him, he thought, I don't want to be a party to Nebuchadnezzar and to his evil regime. I want to show that my allegiance is to the king of heaven. And so he resolved in his heart that he would not eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. And therefore he acted. And he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And it says in verse 9, And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now, that might not seem like he had found at first favour in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs because basically the chief of the eunuchs says, no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. But actually, back at that time, uh, a ruler, their word, word was absolute. So by Daniel making this request, he was going against the ruling of the king, which could cost him his life. And, and, this, and this chief of the eunuchs didn't take uh, Daniel's life away. But notice this. Did Daniel had such a conviction. He'd drawn a line in the sand, so he didn't just stop there. He didn't just stop with the first no. Verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. You see, sometimes it is costly to live for God. If you draw a line in the sand and you say, I am going to live for God, it takes courage because it may cost you. You know, if you go out onto the soccer field, Jono, and if you kick a goal, is out on the soccer field by yourself, it's no big deal, is it? No big deal to kick a goal out there on the soccer field by yourself. But I tell you, mate, if there's an opposition out there, then it really counts, doesn't it? You know, our faith in here does count for something, but I tell you where our faith truly counts is out there. When we draw a line in the sand and with great courage, we stand up to live for God. And notice, many people have seen behind this what they call the Daniel diet. <laughs> that maybe we should all adopt the Daniel diet and eat vegetables and drink water. Now, undoubtedly, for some of us, that would be good for us. But, but I think what this is getting at here is, do you notice in the next verse, it says, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. They didn't lose weight, they gained weight. You see, God was at work. Look at verse 17. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishaiah, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 
10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. You see, here's a principle that you can take to the bank. If you stand for God and you choose to draw a line in the sand and you stand for Him in this secular world, God honours those who honour Him. God will honour those who honour Him, even though everyone around you might be telling you you're foolish for taking that stand. God honours those who honour Him. You know, Eric Little was a runner from last century whose story is told in the movie Chariots of Fire. And in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris, Eric Little's 100-metre race that he was the best at was put on Sunday. But Eric Little had been raised by godly parents who had taught him to fear the Lord. And he had drawn a line in the sand and said, Sunday is the Lord's day. And we go to church on Sunday. We honour God on Sunday. And he drawn a line in the sand and said, I will not do that. And the rest of the people around him, they couldn't believe it. Even the king of England was putting pressure on him to run. Why don't you just run? Why don't you just run? But Eric Little had drawn a line in the sand and said, I will not run because I serve the king of heaven, not the king of earth. Anyways, he signed up for the 400 meter race that was held on a weekday where his time was very, very average. But he was handed this piece of paper by Pollock, the American. And on the piece of paper, it was 1 Samuel 2.30. God honours those who honour him. And he ran the race and he did end up winning the 400 metre race, even though they said, he's a flyer. I don't know how he can do this. Because God honours those who honour him. I wonder this morning, what is God speaking to you about What lines do you need to draw in your heart and say, Lord, that's my standard. I I won't go any further than that. I'm going to live for you in this way. What is it that God wants to say? You know, as we come to the book of Daniel, we need to understand that the genre of the book of Daniel is such that Daniel and his three friends, their weaknesses are never mentioned. They're painted in such perfect like, but Daniel was a person and weak like you and like me. And I think this needs to be said because, um, you know, many of us, all of us have actually been seduced by the world in many ways. But the greater Daniel, the Lord Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he resolved in his heart, he drew a line in the sand and he said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross, dying for you and for me, for all of the ways that we have been seduced by this world. And then God honours those who honour Him and God raised Jesus from the dead. And now you can, in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, you can remain in God's Word. You can resist the pressure to conform. You can resolve to live for God. You know, one of the other things that I love about this passage as I read it is it wasn't just Daniel alone who was standing for God. It was Daniel and his three friends. 
You know, if you are going to stand for, for God in this secular world, you need to remain in community. The lone ranger is a dead ranger. Can you imagine the community that Daniel and his three friends had over those 10 days as they prayed together, waiting to see what God would do? And I love the fact that even though in our secular culture, it might look like the church is dead, it looked like it was all over for Judah at this point, but God was at work through four teenagers who were standing together. And His power was not demonstrated in Jerusalem. His power was demonstrated in them in Babylon. I hope that God has been speaking to you this morning. I've been praying that you were to get a touch from God this morning. But I tell you, I'm more praying that God's power is with you as you go out from this place and you be the church on mission for Jesus in the world. So what's your next step? You have this here this morning, this uh, little piece of paper that we've given you. I wanna challenge you this morning. What's your next step? Do you need to get into community and join a real life group? Write down your name and your email. We'd love to put you in a community group and get you into a group where, which will keep you accountable and help you to take your stand. Are you interested in getting baptised in September? We have a baptism Sunday where you take your stand publicly and you say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am dead to my old life. I'm going to live for Jesus. Or are you interested in attending Alpha? You might be someone who's just looking into the Christian faith. Alpha is a great place to start. Or we have a class that begins tomorrow night called Starting Point. We'd love to invite you along where we talk about how you can not just go to church, but how you can join with us to be the church on mission for Jesus in our city. You see, it's so sad that there was many young people who were taken into captivity, but only four took their stand. Are you going to be seduced by a secular world? Or are you going to re remain in God's Word? Are you going to resist the pressure of our culture? Are you going to resolve to live for God and remain in community so that you can be sempra fi, always faithful, so you won't give over your allegiance to the enemy? Oh Lord, I just pray and thank you for our time together this morning in your word. This is a, a timely word for us as your people living in Adelaide at the moment. I thank you that we don't have to be despairing. You are still in control. You have not left the throne and you still work through young people who determine that they will take their sand because of the glory and grace of God at work within them. And I pray for the young people, particularly in our church, the 15 to 25-year-olds who may even head into a more difficult situation than we in this room have ever experienced. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that equips them well so that they will resist our culture's um, pull that says life is found in the city of man in Babylon. 
so that they will be people who, whose thinking is just thinking that is renewed by the Word of God and so that, that they will be people who resolve in their hearts that though everyone else around them may depart, they have decided to follow Jesus and there is just no turning back. Oh Lord, would you strengthen the faith of this fellowship so that we would believe that you are still at work even in exile. In fact, probably your grace and power is seen more evidently to the people in exile. Oh, Father, I just cry out to you. I ask you to help us to change our mindset away from attending church to being the church to one another. Lord, I pray that you would change our mindset away from being afraid of this culture. Daniel was not afraid. Fear doesn't get to sit on our throne. Fear does not get to sit on your throne, Jesus. Please forgive us for all of the fear that comes out. Your word has already told us that towards the end, there's gonna be wars and rumours of wars. There's gonna be a turning away. Your word has told us that it should not surprise us, but Jesus is still on the throne. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Lord, as we go out this week to worship you and be your church on mission, I pray that we would go out in full faith and full confidence, looking to the Son of God, and I pray for those of us here today who have compromised. I pray that we would realize that your grace is sufficient, your love is sufficient to welcome us back, to, to make us afresh, to bring us into fresh relationship with you and sweet intimacy with you. Oh God, we pray, do a work in our time for your glory and honor, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.